Welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode 19. Thank goodness. Where does the time go? Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where Downtown the Radio Show originates every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. WZON, WKIT, HD3. You can download the WZON app to listen to the show anytime. And of course, there's streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. This week on the podcast, only one guest, and uh, that's just fine, Carrie, because whenever Stephen Tobolowski is on the show, no offense to anybody else, but we just as soon clear the rest of them out and let Stephen talk. He's uh, such a great guy and such a terrific storyteller. Yeah, and that just goes to his writing, his acting. Everything he does involves storytelling, and it comes across every time we talk to him. He's been a very busy guy taping the third season of One Day at a Time for Netflix, and he is in that enviable position for somebody who's been in the business for decades of being very much at the top of his game and in high demand. One Day at a Time, the Goldbergs on ABC, I've been working on Silicon Valley, a couple animated shows as well. He's got a lot going on, but he's uh, always been very generous about finding the time for us. And so here's our, our wide-ranging conversation with Stephen Tobolowski here on Downtown, the podcast. How did your dentist appointment go? Did that work out well? I well, I, I ended up with a cavity. Oh, dear. I never have a cavity, so now I'm halfway numb. So if I sound weird, too weird for recording. We, we could do it another time, but half of my head is numb. Well, the, the half that's functioning is compensating because you sound great. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> You've been so busy, we appreciate you making time here on uh, one of your rare days off. It's been a while, right? It's been a while. Uh, we've been shooting one day at a time, and I guess we finished nine shows now. And on Monday, we start 10 through 13, and... You never have a day off. In fact, this last week, we shot on Sunday, which, um, it, which I mean, it's amazing. So there's no time off, and, and it's like life during wartime. It, it, well, I guess that's, it's not that bad. <laughs> but but it, it, you, you never come out for air. You never come out and see the sun. It's, but it's terrific. You know, as you, we've discussed this before, I think, even in studio, it's so rare as actors that you get to work on a good show. And for some reason, I've been lucky enough lately to work on several good shows at the same time, be it one day at a time or the Goldbergs or Silicon Valley. It just doesn't happen that way. So I'm just knocking on wood and counting my lucky stars. I'm very grateful that I... I got to dip my beak in the pool of, of these very good shows. Yeah, and I, I recently rewatched the last episode of season two to remind myself of how you all took me right to the edge, nearly broke my heart, and then gave me hope for the future. Oh, yes. It's, and and we, we had no idea, really, the impact, really, of that last show of last season on one day at a time because you get your script right before you start working. Like, if pretending we had a Monday through Friday schedule, you would get your script Monday morning to read 
Monday at around 10.30 for all the studio executives. So we're looking over the material, and of course, there are a lot of big speeches in that particular show. And it just kind of hit you like a truck. And when we read for Netflix and for Sony that first day, the Netflix executives were like weeping, listening to that show being read for the first time. And as actors, we were asked, and we we loved the show. We were we shot that over the Labor Day weekend, and and the executive producer said, "Can you guys come in on the Labor Day weekend to rehearse?" So we could shoot this on Tuesday when you come back because it's such a big show and such a difficult show. And everybody said, sure, we'll come in. We love this. You, you, you never get to do a show like that, especially as a sitcom. Yeah, so we've, we we've, were in last Labor Day, yeah. We've talked about your character, too. Dr. Berkowitz is so great, and, and there's certainly comic relief, but so many touching, poignant moments, and, and I don't think that ever more so than when... You kind of your character left open uh, the definition of the relationship with Rita Moreno's character. Yeah, it it is. Uh, I have found that there's a lot of truth in the the system of comedy they call Commedia dell'arte, which mm. I guess was big in the 16 and 1700s, and a lot of modern characters come directly from those old Commedia characters. And there was one comedian character that everything goes wrong with this character. He's a comedic character, and he used to philosophize, and one tragedy befell him after another. And that's kind of what Dr. Berkowitz is, that, that he's lost his, you know, his wife has left him, I think, for an aerobics instructor. His daughters hate him. He, he is a, lone, a lonely man who is looking for love. And I think that the classic comedy take on that from Commedia still works today. Plus, I think looking for love is basically what we're all doing every day 24-7. <laughs> That's for sure. We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. And we were talking recently uh, with Leah Thompson about the wonderful movie she made uh, with her daughters, The Year of Spectacular Men, and she happened to mention she had shot a pilot with you. That's right. Leah, Leah we, we shot uh, a pilot uh, with uh, Lisa Ann Walter. She, she wrote a pilot called Bitter, and which I thought was very, very funny, very much in the vein of Californication, kind of really on the edge about, pretty much a single middle-aged woman divorced, dealing with kids, dealing with an ex, trying to look for love. Again, that theme came up. And we shot at an outdoor eatery in Studio City, not far from my home. I hope we had a uh, license to shoot there because they were serving food there while we were, <laughs> while, while, while Lee was shooting. And, and uh, the, the People were walking to school in front of us. So there was a school down the street. So all the kids were walking. They were getting in the shot, too. But it was a lot of fun shooting. And, and another thing, I don't know if she mentioned this, but they had the camera crew that was instrumental with 
either parks and recreation or the office. And these people, if you know those shows, and I don't know anyone who isn't living under a rock who doesn't know those two shows, those shows are done where the camera is almost a character as well. Right. So they work as a team. They had like two, three cameras, and all those people with the cameras, they're swinging the camera around to pick up the element that they think is going to be important in the scene, whether it's the hand grabbing the cappuccino or whoever's talking or who's ever listening. But it almost creates a narrative in and of itself. So I, I am very much looking forward to seeing that, that come to life. Uh, Stephen, we also uh, had the actress uh, Julia Duffy on last week. She's got a new book uh, coming out called Bad Auditions, which sort of chronicles some of the less impressive auditions she's had and the lessons she learned from them. Is there a particularly bad one in, in your career that sticks out? And was there uh, something that you took away from it that, that you know worked to your favor in, in the next audition? Wow. Bad auditions. Bad <laughs> auditions. This is a subject that is hilarious. Now, of course, you've made it the question more difficult by adding that little caveat at the end. Was there a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow of the bad audition? Uh, while I'm thinking of the answer to that, I will bring up this one bad audition I had with uh, Deb Aquila, who's, who's a big movie casting director, and I was having trouble with my throat. Uh, This was before all of my troubles, and I would get very hoarse in the middle of the day, and it was during this audition with Deb for a movie, and a good movie, and a good part in a good movie, when my voice completely stopped. And I couldn't talk anymore during the audition. And Deb got up and hugged me. And whispered, "I'm so star. I'm so sorry, Stephen. I'm so star. Sorry, that's the uh, novocaine on my tongue making that starry <laughs> instead of sorry." And it was right after that I had my throat surgery, and after that is when I went to Iceland to recover, and after that is when I broke my neck in Iceland. <laughs> so it all came from a bad wow. <laughs> I could say the broken neck led to something. This is this is one thing. Um, I learned, here, here's an example of one of my early bad auditions. I had just come out to Los Angeles and very naive. I had no way of breaking into the business, but I did have my equity card and they had a rule that equity theaters had to have open audition for anyone who had an equity card. And Charlton Heston was going to star in Long Day's Journey and Tonight which is a phenomenal mm. play. And he has two sons in that play, and one of them is Edmund, the young tubercular son who went out to sea and became a poet. And I thought, I could be right for Edmund. I knew that play so well. So I spent a couple weeks in preparation of the open audition learning a scene of Edmund and one of his monologues in that magnificent play. And on the Saturday morning, I went downtown the audition, and there were about 200 people in line in front of me at the Mark Taper Forum Annex where the auditions were, and shortly there were 200 people after me. And I waited in that line, 
for three, three and a half hours. Finally, it was my turn. I went in and there was a table in which there was a male casting director and two female assistants. I walked in, handed him my picture and resume, and he said, and who are you? And I pointed to the picture I had just given him. I go, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky, and I'd like to read for Edmund today. And he interrupted me and said, that won't be necessary. I don't think you're what we're looking for. Ouch. And I said, excuse me, you don't, I haven't done anything yet. I just <laughs> sat down and gave you a picture. He says, I know, but we've been doing this a long time, and we know what we're looking for, and you're not it. Thank you very much. We'll keep your picture and resume on file. And I said, but I learned this speech. He said, thank you very much. And I got up and left. And I realized a very important thing about Hollywood is that I always thought that the wall I would have to break through is the fact that nobody saw me. And as soon as they would see me, I would have a chance to get a job. What I didn't understand was there was a wall around that wall. And it was the wall of the willfully blind. It was the wall of the people that protect the other wall that says, we are going to keep you from being seen. And that audition, as bleak as that story is, taught me a lot. And it taught me that, Stephen, what you want to make in this business, you're going to have to do on your own. If you get help from other people, that's terrific. But you have to be prepared to move forward on your own. And that's when I started writing my own play. This is when we started producing our own shows. Eventually, I got seen. Eventually, I got an agent. Casting director saw me, and I started getting auditions. But it all came from that horrible audition of knowing that this is going to go nowhere. Stephen, I noticed you tweeted last night, and we talked about this uh, some when you were in Bangor last year as well, uh, about uh, some of the spinoff from uh, the Me Too movement. And uh, this week it's been in the news a lot with uh, Louis C.K. returning unannounced to the stage. And and you made what I thought is a terrific point in saying that these are... These are not sexual instances. These are abuses of power, that there's a power dynamic there. And should should the people, the abusers, ever have that opportunity to resume a public career? And if they do, who should decide when it's time? Should it be up to the victims to determine that? Well, boy, there's, there's a lot of topics there. One is, Yes, we always get sidetracked by sex because we find that so interesting, but it's about power. And uh, again, when Louis C.K. was to ask someone who he worked with or was going to work with to be, you know, to be involved in whatever sexual thing he wanted to do at the moment, he put her in a world of lose-lose jeopardy. There's no way she can survive that. But people But this happens not just over sex. It happens over so many different things. And I think what's going to happen is in in an open field, in a public field like show business, eventually the public will decide. But the more powerful the person is, 
the more they are surrounded by that wall of the willfully blind. Mm. Uh, you, you will see Kevin Spacey and various people moving forward. Now, now in, in some of these instances, people were involved with, with men and women they weren't working with. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But you could take a look at the, the big fish in this story, Harvey Weinstein. This is a guy. It isn't, this is a guy that could destroy you. You take a look at me coming to Los Angeles, my hopes and dreams attached to that audition with Charlton Heston. If, if that casting director had made a pass at me, let's say, and, well, you could get an audition if you have sex with me or something like that. I'm just throwing that out there because it's a typical Hollywood scenario. I would be doomed because it doesn't, first of all, it means that if I said yes to the, to the advance, I would be part of the problem. I would be part of the engine that says this is acceptable in our industry and in our society. And if I said no, that casting director would tell other casting directors to protect him, to create the wall of the willfully blind, to say this guy. This Stephen Tobolowsky doesn't work. And, you know, it happens all the time in show business, not just over sex, but it happens over all sorts of things where the word gets out that somebody did something that was not approved of by the higher-ups, and their career was doomed. And, and you take a look at all my little hopes and dreams that I had attached to that first audition with Charlton Hess. I was devastated when I waited for hours and couldn't even audition. But you take a look at the woman who, who wrote in, in the piece about Louis C.K. You know, her whole life, her energy and her adult life was to be a comic. And now she is in the no man's land of lose-lose. She was a person who was victimized in terms of a more powerful person uh, putting her in a position where she couldn't say yes or no and survive the situation, uh, at least career-wise survive the situation. And then the brutality of online pillaring mm. that people get these days to where you have to be able to survive the, the vengeance of people who don't even know you online piping in with their two cents. And, and it, it's, a, it's a scary situation. To answer your original question, it's complex, but eventually, it depends on the it depends on the crime. It depends on the forgiveness of the crime, and it depends if the public forgives the crime. Back with more in just a moment with this week's podcast guest Stephen Tobolowski. First. We bring you this word from our sponsors, our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit Cross Insurance insurance.com cross insurance where security meets strength a little more than five years ago a couple of friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich german tradition of brewing 
layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born. Nice. G-N-E-I-S-S. Based right in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and look for Nice cans now available throughout the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Ah, yes, the sounds of the iconic film Groundhog Day celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. Of course, Stephen Tobolowsky, a big part of that, his iconic role as Ned Ryerson. And uh, we talked with Stephen in our conversation about uh, the enduring qualities of Groundhog Day and what's made it stand up after all these years. It could have been just a comedy that uh, people watched and maybe fondly remembered, but it's taken on a life of its own. And, and is it because of uh, the darkness and, and even the existentialism of the theme of that? What, from your perspective as an actor, made it a film that's really become viewed as one of the great comedies of all time? Well, on, on, the, on level B, it is that Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin, the director and writer of the script, when we started shooting week one, said, what are we doing here? Now, first of all, that conversation usually doesn't happen on a film. Uh, they got the green light to do this comedy with Bill Murray. It was the popular kind of comedy, Bill Murray being crazy in a lot of crazy situations. And this the fantastical situation of the repeated day. Uh, but... Our director and writer got together, and Harold Ramis said, what is the story we're telling? Are we doing a comedy, or are we telling a story about how man uses time and the consequences of how we use time? And Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin, this is the second thing that wouldn't have happened, got together and rewrote the script. Mm. After we started shooting, rewrote the script. And uh, I mentioned in one of my podcasts, we were getting the pages hot off the press. And and if I remember correctly, in the original Groundhog Day script, the movie kind of builds to Bill committing suicide or attempting to commit suicide, and he realizes he can't even commit suicide, so he's not going to be a jerk anymore. And in the next day, he wakes up and everything's fine. And what 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 happened was the, the script was rewritten and the end of of the, the suicide was moved to the end of Act 2. And so much of Act 3 was added to the script. Bill taking piano lessons and saving the lady with the flat tire and help saving the kid falling from the tree and helping the mayor who's choking on steak. All those things that helped make the movie what the movie is. Because once Bill paid attention not to himself and his own needs, but once he became in service of other people, then he got everything he wanted. And so I think on level B, all of those little changes made Groundhog Day remarkable. And if, if I can offer my own kind of throw into it, if you go down to the basement, level O, 
all of those choices required courage, which is not something you see a lot of in Hollywood. When, when we started reshooting scenes at the end of that first week, that's when studios are looking over the director's shoulder and looking over the production shoulder saying, how, how is our money being spent? And they see that expensive scenes are being thrown out. And instead, and I believe I brought up this example before, one of the big scenes that we shot at the end of the first week was when Bill realizes that he has no consequences. And in the original script, he gets the idea and he starts spray painting his little room at the end and he gets out a chainsaw and starts cutting the furniture in half and then he cuts his hair into a mohawk and and, it, you know, it's a lot of hilarious stuff. And then in the morning, it's all the same. And that scene took three days to film of 70 people on the crew getting paid shooting this scene for three days. And Harold Ramis looked at it and threw that scene out <laughs> first week and replaced it with the scene where Bill is in bed in the end. He gets the idea that maybe time is repeating itself, and he takes a pencil out from behind his ear, breaks it in two, puts one on the bedside table and one on top of the radio. And in the morning, when Sonny and Cher comes on, Bill wakes up, and the pencil is whole. And when I saw that scene in a full theater, the audience gasped. And that kind of decision takes courage to do that. And so when I go down to level A, I think Groundhog Day is a great film because you had great ideas in the film, a great writer and a great director and a good cast, but there was courage at the top. And that's why I think it's going to be a film for the age. Stephen, before we let you go, we want to talk about the, the great successes your, your wonderful wife, Anne, has been having uh, with some terrific theatrical, uh, theatrical productions uh, this spring and summer. Heaven help us. Heaven help us. It's like Anne has become one of the go-to directors in Los Angeles. And, you know, she, she spent her time in the trenches working at this theater, and then she, they gave her these plays to look at that were kind of cast-offs from the theater that weren't picked right off the bat, or people weren't necessarily that eager to work on, and they were magical. They were absolutely stunning, and got reviews like you wouldn't believe, and full houses, and now the great thing is that the playwrights, and this is what happens, the playwrights that Anne worked with, now they want her to do their next one. <laughs> so it it. But it goes back to what I was saying before. You got to do it on your own, in a way. You know, and, you know, handed out programs and helped clean the stage and paint scenery. And she's a couple years younger than me. But she spent her time at that theater before they said, well, why don't you direct me this play? And she did it and made a triumph out of it. And, uh, and I got to tell you, you know, I, there's almost nobody on earth I would rather have direct me than Anne, uh, not because she's my wife, but because as a human, she has such enormous clarity of thought that, that she, plus as 
an empathetic soul, be that because she's a woman, I don't know, but empathetic soul. She can communicate to the actors, to the sound people, to the producers in a way that they will understand what is needed to be done in a play. And she becomes the ultimate problem solver. Well, we love you both. We're so happy for all the successes you're experiencing. And and we always appreciate you making some time for us on a rare day off today. Well, I, I love talking to you guys. And in my mind, in my mind, I am in that booth with you guys. And was that garage wine? The carry it opened up. I forget which it was. But I am I am thinking it's wine day, and I'm in that studio, and I'll remember the smell of that studio. And if the listeners don't know, it's good. It's the <laughs> smell of wood and electricity and talk and excitement, and it, it's a good place to be. Well, we got to get you guys back here when you stop being so in demand. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Hopefully that won't be for a while, though. Well, maybe not until the winter. We we still have to spend the winter in Bangor before we can officially say we love Maine. All right. I would think twice about that, but we'll always welcome <laughs> you whatever time of year. Stephen, uh, thank you so much as always. Please give our best to Anne as well. You got it, Rich. Thank you. That's Stephen Tobolowski joining us in this week's Downtown the Podcast. And thanks to you. Thanks to you for being with us as well. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.